Hello, everyone, and thank you all once again for listening to the Saga of World War II, a Cassis Belly project. The website is still up at CassisBellyPodcast.com, and of course, we're still streaming on SoundCloud. Again, it's been a while since our last installment, but I'm hoping to pick up the pace, and we've got some exciting stuff coming up, including Operation Barbarossa and the sinking of the Bismarck. But in this episode, we cover the invasion of Yugoslavia and Greece, the battle for Crete, and discuss the life and career of Erwin Rommel. There's some Greek names in this episode that I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce, so please go easy on me. Okay, so I wasn't able to come up with a very clever name for this episode, so I went with a simple one. Let's begin Episode 10, Battle on the Periphery. Frankly and definitely, there is danger ahead. Danger against which we must prepare. defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. As 1941 marched on, Hitler's plans for the Soviet Union were behind schedule. Before invading, he needed to secure his right flank. As discussed previously, Hungary and Romania had been brought into Nazi orbit, but two outliers remained. Mussolini's disastrous invasion of Greece not only created a potential allied base of operations in the Balkans, but also disrupted Hitler's carefully laid plans for the Balkans. In addition, Yugoslavia remained staunchly outside the German sphere of influence. Both of these problems would be swiftly resolved. Yugoslavia would come first. In an attempt to save himself time and his army's strength, Hitler attempted to strong-arm the Yugoslav government into compliance. The result was the Tripartite Pact, essentially making Yugoslavia a Nazi satellite. This quickly unraveled, though. The population was furious, and on March 27th, tanks rolled into Belgrade to expel the Prince Regent Paul and replace him with the more malleable King Peter II. Hitler was furious that the Yugoslavians had turned on him, and in retaliation, invaded. On April 6th, 650,000 men, led by Field Marshal von List, descended on Yugoslavia in the aptly named Operation Punishment. German columns penetrated the Yugoslav frontier from every direction, overwhelming the country's untested army. Within two weeks, the battle for Yugoslavia was over and the country was partitioned between the co-belligerents. However, a particularly spiny insurgency would soon form. The Yugoslav resistance was probably the most effective of any in the war due to the often rugged, mountainous terrain of the Adriatic coast and the Balkan interior. On the same day the Yugoslav invasion began, German columns poured into Greece. They avoided the Metaxis line, instead maneuvering around it. While the Greeks sat entrenched, facing the Italians in Albania, the Germans were able to advance relatively uncontested. The Greeks fought with tenacity alongside their 56,000 Anzac allies who had landed in Salonika. The highly proficient and well-equipped Wehrmacht was too much for the lightly armed and poorly supplied allies, though. 
The Anzac men fought a bitter fighting retreat back to Athens under constant German harassment, but soon the retreat turned to rout as disorganized Greek soldiers and civilians joined the column. As RAF air cover dried up from the loss of one airfield after another, the Luftwaffe gained air superiority and the awful screaming of the Stukas could be heard overhead, sending men diving into ditches. Realizing that only death and destruction awaited the British forces in Greece, the government in Athens told the Allies to leave. They had done their part, but the war would continue after the fall of Greece. Over the course of two nights, from April 23rd to 25th, the Anzacs would evacuate to Egypt and Crete. 43,000 of the original 56 made it off the peninsula. Losses may have been even greater had it not been for MK Ultra, the British decryption effort, delivering timely and imperative intelligence on German locations throughout the Greek campaign. British units were able to avoid being outflanked and withdrew before large German thrusts hit them with all their might. The conquest of the Balkans was another notch in Hitler's belt. Over the course of only a few weeks, he had been able to add Yugoslavia and Greece to his empire, at a loss of only 5,000 men. In comparison, 90,000 Slavs, 270,000 Greeks, and 13,000 Imperial troops had been captured. Finally, he thought, he could begin his invasion of the Soviet Union. To his displeasure, yet more obstacles stood in his way. Heavy spring rains had left most of his eastern frontier, the jumping-off point for his invasion, mired in mud. Secondly, Crete remained a thorn in his side, which served as a perfect base of operations for the RAF and Royal Navy. Hitler probably would have been willing to allow Crete to the Allies, though. The main battle had been won. Who cares if the Allies got to keep some island? It was at the urging of General Student that Hitler authorized the airborne invasion of Crete. Student was ecstatic. He was finally able to really test airborne operations on an operational scale. They had been used tactically in Belgium and Holland, but never before had parachutists been tested on such a large scale. For his invasion, Student would utilize the whole of the Fallschirmjäger Corps, consisting of one parachute division and a glider regiment, plus a mountain division. Opposite Student stood Major General Sir Bernard Freyberg of New Zealand. Freyberg was a fighting general. He was a veteran of Gallipoli, had earned the Victoria Cross on the Western Front, and was the youngest British general of the First World War. He had first met Churchill during the interwar years at a country home in England, where, in response to Churchill's astonishment at his many wounds, he remarked matter-of-factly, you nearly always get two wounds for every bullet or splinter, because mostly they have to go out as well as in. Churchill never forgot Freyberg, and so believed him to be especially suited to the defense of Crete. From his operational headquarters, Freyberg commanded just under 50,000 Anzac and Greek troops. However, he lacked heavy equipment, especially tanks. Freyberg arrayed his forces so as to defend the island's key terrain, airfields. To Heracleion, the island's largest town and main port on the northern coast, he dispatched four infantry battalions, two Greek, two British, and one Australian, plus one artillery regiment fighting his light infantry. To Retimo, another coastal town with an airfield west of Heracleion, he sent three Australian battalions and two Greek. To Suda Bay, he left the 2,000 men of the British Mobile Naval Defense Organization. Finally, around the critical Malame airfields, he posted two New Zealand brigades, plus three battalions of Greek troops. By early May, all of Freyberg's men were in position and digging in. More men and equipment would trickle in before the invasion, including an additional British infantry battalion, 22 tanks, and 49 field guns. Operation Mercury, 
as the German invasion was known, called for two waves of airborne assault at four locations. The first wave would land in the west of the island to capture Malame Airfield. Once the airfield was captured, men of the supporting mountain division would be flown in to support the drive eastward. At the same time, men would be dropped at the small town of Kanya to link up with the troops in Malame. In the afternoon, the second wave would arrive to land at Retimo and Heracleion. The plane did not go so smoothly. At dawn of May 20th, the invasion began. Luftwaffe transports and gliders streamed over Crete, dropping little camouflage mushrooms into the island skies. The battle would begin before the German troops even hit the ground. What anti-air pieces survived unleashed punishing fire on the German aircraft, and soldiers on the ground picked off as many paratroopers as they could as they slowly descended toward the ground. Many of the men fell out well outside their jump zones and landed inside Allied formations, resulting in them being immediately captured. Others landed near towns and villages, where the civilian population butchered them with knives and ditches, where they hid. The glider troops didn't fare much better. The hilly Cretan terrain offered few suitable areas to land, and many of the gliders crashed into hillsides, killing all aboard. Counterintuitively, it was the units who fell far outside their drop zones that ended up being the most effective. They were able to coalesce and organize themselves without enemy interference. One unit that landed west of Malamé was able to advance on the airfield at night and spook the local commander into retreating before dawn. With the airfield captured, the Germans were able to fly in reinforcements the next day and guarantee their victory. It was far from a sure thing, though. Some German units were wiped out before ever touching the ground. The seaborne invasion was just as much of a disaster as the airborne. Roughly 400 men of the Mountain Division were sent to the bottom by the Royal Navy. They weren't sunk without a fight, though. The Luftwaffe dispatched fighter bombers to counter the British ships, sinking the cruisers Fiji and Gloucester. Despite their staggering losses on the first day of battle, the Germans eventually captured all of Crete over the course of a bitter week of fighting. And once again, the Royal Navy had to rescue stranded soldiers to fight another day. Student had won a Pyrrhic victory. He had suffered 17,000 casualties, and the Fallschirmjäger were a shell of a formation and were never employed again. Unfortunately, thousands of British soldiers had been left behind on the island, and the various pockets that were rolled up and isolated from the main body. With Crete and the Balkans secured, Hitler stood poised to invade the Soviet Union, but in fact he was at an inflection point. A choice lay before him. Concentrate on North Africa to finish the British off by severing them from their oil supplies in the Middle East and Suez Canal, or turn toward Russia and leave Britain hanging on the vine. Admiral Rader had seen the way to defeating the British and explained it to the Fuhrer. He saw that the British wanted to eliminate the weaker Italians before confronting Germany directly in Northern Europe. He also saw that the RAF and Royal Navy could still effectively operate in the Mediterranean from their many bases on Malta, Cyprus, Gibraltar, Egypt, and elsewhere. Sure, they were on the back foot, but the British were by no means defeated. At best, the war in North Africa had been fought to a draw. If only he could convince Hitler to commit another six months and commensurate troops to wrapping up operations in the Mediterranean. With Gibraltar fallen and the Suez captured, British shipping would then have to go the long way around Africa. In addition, their colonies in the Middle East and India would now be exposed to direct assault. What's more, if Turkey could be pressured into cooperating with the Axis at this point, the vulnerable Russian southern flank would be exposed. Hitler could have also made common cause with the growing Arab nationalist movement in the Levant, particularly in Iraq. 
The Ba'ath Party managed to win the Prime Ministership of Iraq and launched a small anti-British campaign. Perhaps, with greater commitment, this cause could have grown to be a boon for the German efforts in the region. Instead, the British were able to quickly defeat the small force arrayed against them. General Auchinleck dispatched a brigade to Basra to neutralize the threat. In May, a small battle was fought at Habaiya, where the Iraqis aimed to capture a British airbase. After destroying the threat, the British troops marched on Baghdad and removed the offending government and placed a friendly regime in power. In Germany, Hitler was too focused on Barbarossa to entertain a large Mediterranean venture. He had already lost a precious month to dithering and sidebar operations. Instead, forces would only be detailed to the North African theater and the broader Middle East piecemeal. His scant forces in Syria would soon be removed as the British invaded to shore up their flank there and deny the Germans a base of operations on the Asian continent. Unfortunately, the Vichy French forces did not simply roll over and instead put up a meaningful resistance to the British advance. Wavell, already short on men and material, had to dispatch more men midway through the campaign to secure Damascus. But, by June 8th, the city fell to Australian troops. Now, the only hope for Raiders' plan lay in the hands of Erwin Rommel and his Africa Corps. When Rommel arrived in North Africa, he was an unknown to the British command. As far as they knew, the Germans had dumped some middling officer into a backwater theater, far from the halls of power in Berlin or the large commands. Sure, he had performed admirably in the Ardennes Offensive, but his name didn't carry the weight of Guderian, List, or von Rundstedt. What little the Allies did know would have been based on what was reported in the papers, which was in turn lifted from German propaganda, which is to say, it was not particularly reliable. Apparently, much was read into the fact that Rommel had commanded Hitler's bodyguard, and it was assumed that he was a frothing Nazi street fighter. In reality, the caricature made for him didn't much resemble his true nature. Erwin Johannes Jürgen Rommel was born on November 15, 1891, just outside the city of Ulm in southern Germany, to his father Erwin Siener and Helena von Luz. He had one older brother and would eventually have three younger siblings, two of them brothers and one sister. The Rommels were an academic family. Both Erwin Sr. and his father before him had been mathematicians, and Erwin Sr. would eventually become the principal of a high school in Aalen. Erwin Jr., however, was not much of a student or an academic. He aspired to be an engineer in his teens, but could never earn the marks, so instead he turned his gaze toward the military. Not being of Prussian stock, he could only expect a modest military career. Without the aristocratic connections of the old families in the East, he was unlikely to get promoted quickly or be assigned to prestigious units, but he could expect a reasonable salary and a comfortable pension at retirement. So in 1910, at the age of 21, he enlisted in the 124th Infantry Regiment as the equivalent of an officer cadet, and several months later went to the military academy in Danzig. After two years, he graduated and returned to the 124th as a lieutenant. There he gained a reputation as a tough, smart officer who got along with his men. If it were not for the war that lay just over the horizon, he likely would have served his career competently, if without distinction. But the war did come, and Rommel excelled at it, even reveled in it. His first contact with the enemy and combat experience came almost immediately, when he led his platoon on a patrol near Verdun. Rommel preferred a very personal style of command that was very much ahead of its time. Much like during the invasion of Belgium 20 years later, he chose to lead his platoon from the front and was always present at the decisive point. On August 22, 1914, his regiment was advancing into France 
and his platoon tasked with conducting a reconnaissance. Rommel chose to conduct the recon personally, despite suffering from food poisoning. So riding forward alone in the early morning fog, he located the village and brought his platoon forward. When his formation was spotted and fired on, he had to think fast. Leaving his platoon in its current position, he chose three men and conducted a bold flanking maneuver following a trail around the village. They soon found their way blocked by roughly 20 French soldiers. Rather than call up his platoon, Rommel simply attacked them right there, knowing that the main body of his platoon would come forward if the recon element was engaged. As the main element moved forward, Rommel and his two soldiers killed and scattered the Poilu. When his platoon came forward, they proceeded to clear the village by fire. Literally by fire. They would toss bundles of burning straw in a building, forcing out any hiding Poilu. For his heroism and boldness, he was awarded the highest medal available, the Poor Le Marie. That was his first engagement of the war, but far from his last. He would continue to serve in France, as well as Italy and Romania. By January of 1915, he had earned the Iron Cross, and was soon promoted to First Lieutenant and transferred to the Alpen Corps, where he was given company command. By the end of the war, he had achieved battalion command and participated at the Battle of Caporetto on the Asanzo Front. There, he would again demonstrate his bold leadership style. He and seven men crossed the river by night and attacked the village of Longaroni. By firing in rapid succession from a wide front, he was able to convince the Italian garrison that a much larger force was attacking them. In the morning, he walked to the village and demanded its surrender. From then until the end of the war, he was assigned to staff positions. After the war, he would remain in the army and be thankful for it. The Versailles Treaty limited the German army to 100,000 men and only 400 officers. His stellar performance in the war had earned him a place in that post-war army. Peacetime service may have seemed boring, but it was better than civilian life. The economy was in tatters, and being a veteran offered no perks in the sour mood of post-war Germany. In the aftermath of the war, he would retain the rank of captain and remain a company commander, first in the 124th Infantry, then in the 13th Infantry, where he would remain until being promoted to major and being reassigned to the infantry school as an instructor. While there, he would write Infantry Attacks, one of the most influential books on tactics ever written and still read by infantry officers to this day. Next, he would take command of the 3rd Jaeger Battalion after being promoted to lieutenant colonel. While in command of the Jaegers, he would have a fateful meeting. Hitler had come to town, and in celebration, Rommel was to lead his troops in parade. Though not a Nazi himself, like most of the population, Rommel saw Hitler as an inspiration and great leader for Germany. But, to his disgust, reviled SS troops would lead the parade, to which Rommel protested. This brought him into direct confrontation with Hitler, who agreed that Rommel's men should lead the column. Hitler's respect for Rommel led him to his position and as head of training in the Hitler Youth. Though Rommel found Chirac, the head of the Hitler Youth, unbearable and soon left the position. In 1937, he was promoted to full colonel and made commandant of the Theresian Military Academy and War College. He would only serve there for about a year, though, before being placed in command of Hitler's personal bodyguard. Here, he was close enough to Hitler to observe him and came to admire, or at least respect him. He was amazed at Hitler's self-confidence and ability to understand the motivations and drives of those around him. When the war started, he accompanies Hitler's headquarters in Poland and saw the effectiveness of Blitzkrieg and yearned to utilize the tactics himself. He would get his wish when he was transferred to lead the 7th Panzer Division during the Ardennes Offensive. However, this was all prelude to his great moment in history 
as commander of the Africa Corps, where he would earn his moniker, the Desert Fox. When he learned he was being transferred to North Africa in 1941, he immediately began to prepare by studying O'Connor's victory in Operation Compass. He saw that proper logistical preparation and combined arms tactics had led to their overwhelming victory and aimed to utilize those lessons to what he had already learned during the Ardennes Offensive. In addition, he trained his unit on a sandy peninsula in the Baltic Sea where he simulated sandy desert conditions as best he could. By early April, all of his men had landed in North Africa and he began preparations for his offensive into Egypt. He sent out patrols for the purpose of making his troops visible to the disheartened Italians. Hearing news that O'Connor had been halted to withdraw to Greece, he accelerated his timetable. On March 31, 1941, he drove his column into Cyrenica, quickly rolling up the skeleton force left behind by the British. By April 7th, O'Connor had been captured, and one of the most promising commanders of the war would spend several years as a POW. But O'Connor's service doesn't end there. It is a bit of an aside, but O'Connor's story is actually pretty thrilling. After being captured, he was taken to an Italian POW camp near Florence. While there, he attempted to escape twice, both of which resulted in him being placed in solitary confinement for a month. Finally, after the Italian surrender in 1943, he was able to escape. While being transported to a new camp, he was broken free by the Italian resistance and made his way south to the front, where he joined the Allies. After returning to Britain, he received his knighthood and would go on to be a corps commander during Operation Overlord. Who knows the renown O'Connor could have achieved had he managed to escape Rommel's grasp? This is pure speculation, but perhaps he could have fought the Desert Fox to a draw and made his name as famous as Patton or Eisenhower. Instead, he is almost unknown outside of military history circles. Montgomery should probably be grateful, though, for if O'Connor had remained in command, he probably would have never achieved the status he did, and it would be O'Connor, not Montgomery, that history remembered. In another week, Rommel's men had advanced their front 400 miles and stood on the precipice of Egypt. Tobruk remained a thorn in their side, however, and simply could not be allowed to stand in the middle of the German supply line. So on April 13th, Rommel ordered an assault on the fortress town, which was promptly beaten back. Again, on April 16th, he attempted to capture the town, but the Australian garrison proved resolute and held off the underfed, underfueled, and beleaguered Africa Corps. With no other option, Rommel had to halt the advance. With the Imperial troops reeling from being driven back hundreds of miles, and the German-Italian advance short of supplies at the end of a perilously long supply line, the war in North Africa froze for a moment. Seeing the dire circumstances the Middle East Command was in, Churchill decided on a bold strategy to reinforce the Western Desert Force. Despite the threat of cross-channel invasion, he authorized the transfer of 295 tanks to Egypt. This through the highly contested Mediterranean Sea, in order to cut the travel time by more than half. In contrast, neither Hitler nor Mussolini ever considered sending Rommel more men. Hitler, on the eve of embarking on Operation Barbarossa, could not conceive of relinquishing a single tank from the eastward invasion. In addition, Rommel was only supposed to hold the line, not engage in an aggressive counter-offensive. For his part, Mussolini was already embarrassed that his junior partner had to bail him out and was loath to accept more help from the Germans. So at this critical moment, when the Middle East command was at its weakest, the Axis failed to deliver the finishing blow. With help, Rommel may have reached Cairo by June. Instead, the North Africa campaign would drag on for years. 
The British plan was not one of maneuver or exploitation, but simply to overwhelm the defenders in a frontal assault. A force of infantry would attack Fort Capuzzo to the north, while a column of tanks attempted to force Halfaya Pass to the south. It was an obvious scheme, and Rommel saw it coming. He knew the British would have to take Halfaya Pass, and so positioned his 88mm anti-tank guns to guard its approach. Of those tanks, 238 would arrive in Alexandria on May 12th, the difference having been sunk by a mine in transit. These would immediately be assigned to participate in Operation Battleaxe. The British pushed back west, commanded by Major General Beresford Pierce. The battle began in the early morning of June 14, 1941. Imperial troops advanced on their objectives under moonlight. The right flank made contact with the enemy first at Halfaya Pass. After being held up for several hours due to their supporting artillery being delayed, they finally began their assault in broad daylight. Rommel's 88s tore them to pieces. Under withering fire from accurate anti-tank fire, only 12 of the 13 Matildas pushed forward to lead the assault survived, giving the pass its moniker, Hellfire. In the center, the attack actually went to plan and Fort Capuzzo was captured relatively quickly. Despite German counterattacks, the British were able to hold their ground. Unfortunately, these gains were rendered null when the left flank was drawn into a trap. Rommel had held some tanks in reserve, on his right, for the very purpose of ambushing the British advance. After slogging forward for most of the day, the British tankers saw German armor appear on their left, and were so surprised they had to turn and retreat back to their starting position. They lost half their strength by nightfall. The next day, Rommel attempted to retake Fort Capuzzo, but was once again repulsed. The attacks on the fort did have the effect of spoiling British plans for renewed offensives that day, though, and so gained him another day. On the third day, Rommel had coalesced his formations in preparation for an assault on the British. Seeing this, the British command decided it better to retreat and consolidate from their original embarkation point. Operation Battleaxe and the Battle of Hellfire Pass were hard losses for Churchill. He had weakened his home defenses and had to watch as the Axis added another victory to their belts. He blamed Wavell for the failure in North Africa, despite the fact that this was a monumental and nigh-impossible task. In his frustration, he fired Wavell and replaced him with General Auchinleck, who had been serving in India. Churchill seemed to have missed the great lesson of Hellfire Pass, though. Until this point, offensive tank operations had always been victorious, from Poland to France to North Africa. This was the first time a Blitzkrieg-type campaign had been defeated, by a German nonetheless. Rommel had demonstrated how to defeat fast, bold, maneuver with armor. There would be little time to contemplate this defeat, though, for Hitler's invasion of Russia was about to begin. But we are not quite there yet. We still need to discuss the battle to destroy the Bismarck that roared at sea. After covering that, we'll move to talk about Hitler's deputy Fuhrer, Rudolf Hess, and then we review the plan to invade Russia, Operation Barbarossa.